team, beloved, trust that you are well as you press on towards the end of a semester. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 as we uh, march closer and closer to being done with the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible uh, tonight, there should be one in the seat in front of you. I don't want to presume that you uh, know where the book of Colossians is in that pew Bible. It's on page 819 where we'll be tonight. Uh, I don't also want to presume that you've read the Bible. So uh, the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. So Colossians chapter 4 tonight, we'll uh, conclude the main portion of Colossians. And next week, Lord willing, we will turn our attention uh, to Paul's closing and wrapping up the letter uh, in two parts. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 tonight, if you would stand as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. Talking and thinking about the idea of Christ-centered evangelism. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 5, this is the word of the Lord. Walk in wisdom... Toward those who are outside, redeeming time, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Praise God for keeping his word for us so we can read it and think through it together this evening. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight, humbled by the fact that we even are gathered Humbled by the fact that you have called us to yourself. Humbled by the fact that we even desire to gather. A desire that has been a foreign one to us prior to our conversion. But now for those of us who are in you is hopefully an insatiable desire. One that we just can't seem to get enough of. That if we were to say... Let's do this again tomorrow. We would hopefully have the same desire to be here tomorrow, not because tonight's Wednesday, but because anytime your word is open, we desire to hear from it. So, Father, thank you for these students. I pray that they would continue to grow in grace and knowledge of your word, that they would be presented mature in you one day as they stand before you, that, Father, as pastors and staff, here at our church that we have equipped them to do the work of the ministry and and we're seeking to see their gifts that you have uniquely given to them used for your glory and their good and father we know tonight that we aren't the only people who are trying to see this in our people we think of uh we think of our brothers and sisters at boulevard baptist church Think of our our brothers and sisters even tonight at at Cherry Street Baptist Church and and just the faithful men who are investing and trying to do the same thing that we labor to do with our members. We ask that you would allow them to see the same fruit come to bear in the people that attend there and that they would reach people for your glory. Because, Father, ultimately that's what the Christian life is about, not about our own fame, but yours. So, Father, even tonight as we are thinking about what it means to share the gospel, I pray that we might understand that this is not designed to be a guilt trip or to a do more better type attitude, but ultimately that our burden would come from your word and from you because we're about making much of you. 
It's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen. Every, dis- every day we make a decision about what we will live for on that particular day. Now the culture at large tells us that we should live for and be about whatever brings us the most pleasure. For instance, we might be in our office with a plate of grilled bacon. So we might call our man Dwight to see what's shaking. Dwight might respond that our town is dope and pretty and encourage us to check out how they live in the electric city. Or we could be influenced by other cultural theologians of yesteryear. Those particular theologians maybe might go by the name Poison, who wrote, I'm always working, slaving every day. Got to get away from the same old, same old. I need a chance to get away. If you could hear me, think this is what I'd say. And we'd all shout, don't need nothing but a good time. How can I resist? Ain't looking for nothing but a good time. And it doesn't get any better than this. We laugh, we chuckle. But I think what's ironic about it is, I think, honestly, as much as growing up in the independent fundamental Baptist world where even the idea of reading those lyrics in a sermon would be considered apostasy, most of the Christians that I lived with in that church lived by that poison ethic. They were living and working and surrounding their life about getting to whatever the next good time was. And what I find ironic about it is your and my generation is put down for being obsessed with things like this Thursday's release of Endgame and the amount of chatter that happens about that online. And the same people who are critiquing you would rather sacrifice their dog on an open plane than miss the opening weekend of baseball or a college football game or the opening day of deer season or even the opportunity to go and fish or go to the lake because it doesn't matter what generation you are in you're always if you're not careful chasing down the next good time and if we're not careful our life will be based around chasing and pursuing whatever that next good time is to the detriment of what God's desire is for the Christian to live even in those quote-unquote good times for his glory by thinking and living missionally. So tonight, as the Apostle Paul brings this main section of the letter of Colossians to an end, I want to encourage us to think about what it means to be Christ-centered evangelists. Now, you may say, David, isn't that redundant? And I think it might be in the title to say that it is redundant to think about Christ-centered evangelism. But the more I thought about the title to the sermon, the more I thought, no, I think we need this title. Because I think there's a lot of evangelism that is done 
on the basis of come to know Jesus and your life will be better, not come to know Jesus because you're a sinner in need of God's grace. And if you don't, you will spend eternity separated from a holy and just God. And your greatest need is not for your life to be better, but for you to be right ultimately with Christ. I'm fearful that if we don't constantly keep this in front of us, that living in the cultural pressure times that we do, we'll be tempted to make coming to know Jesus more about your life being better than about the fact of your current condition prior to knowing Christ and your need for that to be fixed. So how are we supposed to have this Christ-centered evangelism? And before we jump into that, it is worth connecting verses 2 through 4 with 5 and 6. The reason why the previous verses come first is not because the Apostle Paul has a bug in his ear or a burr in his saddle or something that's annoying him that he just has to get this thing about prayer out of the way first. It's that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing and reminding the Colossians that they cannot do any successful evangelism without first bathing it in prayer. Notice that that's why we have a 4.33 through 38 challenge and not a Colossians 4, 5, and 6 challenge. Because this is our great trap. I can stand here and tell you how much we need to do evangelism. And I can beat you over the head with it and put and lay the guilt trip on you. But outside of the work of the Holy Spirit and creating a desire innately in you through your prayer for opportunities to evangelize, you'll not actually, I think, carry it out. The only reason why I know that is because I've lived under that heavy works-based following Jesus. If you don't tell somebody about Jesus, their blood is going to be on your hands and you it's going to be your fault that they're in hell. And I just don't think that that's a proper biblical motivation. Because ultimately, you're not responsible for man's condition. That ultimately is passed to everyone through Adam. And so it's not your fault that someone is headed to hell. But the fact that you know that they are should alarm you to the fact that you should tell them about Christ. I think the Apostle Paul is going to give us some very clear and helpful thoughts about how we can approach this. So number one, three things, right? Good good sermon has three thoughts. So number one, step carefully. Step carefully. Look at verse number five. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Paul begins by exhorting the Colossians to think about the way that they walk. Now, This is not some instruction about how to be like more efficient in your walking as uh, they live in the first century world as if to cut some time off of the distance between Colossae and Ephesus or Colossae and Laodicea. Like Paul's not about trimming time off their Google map time to get from Colossae to Laodicea and then from Laodicea to back to Ephesus and vice versa. This is about thinking about how you would walk. In, in the way that you live out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Christians are under this 
we get weird. We're weird people sometimes. We want to divorce the mind and the heart from actually how we live out what it means to follow Jesus. So we have big hearts for theology and doctrine. We just have small feet for walking them out. We, we love to read good books and listen to great podcasts, but we don't want to talk to anybody about that. You want a perfect illustration of this? Go and sit in your small group on Sunday morning. We love to sit and listen to biblical teaching, but when it comes time to actually like talk that out, we don't want to do it. When it comes time to difficult questions like, how did your Bible reading actually change you this week? We're tempted to skip over that question because I read it, but I did it just to get by. And it's not actually connected to anything about how I'm living. Yeah, the Bible says, be careful how you speak, but I wasn't this week because I never connected what it was saying to how I live. And Paul is constantly fighting this. The New Testament's constantly fighting this. Your heart, your mind are deeply connected to your feet and how you should live out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And fundamentally, what is at stake here is when a Christian has a right understanding of the gospel, it will inherently impact the way that they live their lives. This is why Christians, more often than not, are seen as being weird in society because they claim to believe one thing and the way that they live outside of their Christian influences seems to be oddly disconnected. I think this is what confuses a lot of non-Christians, or as Mark Dever refers to them, pre-Christians. I love that optimism. Like, we're so optimistic about you, we're not going to refer to you as an unbeliever or a non-Christian. We're going to call you a pre-Christian because we have that much faith that the gospel can convert anyone that we're going to just assume that you're a pre-Christian. But when we have a right understanding of what it looks like and understand the gospel rightly, it should impact the way that we live out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, sadly, that's disconnected. And Apostle Paul wants to remind the Colossians, your heart, your mind impacts the way that you walk, and it should be consistent. He says, walk in wisdom. Now, we may be tempted, okay, great, the Apostle Paul, right? He is basically Johnny Super Christian, Mr. Know-it-all. He's got fabulous degrees. He's got great credentials. He's written 13 books of the New Testament, walk in wisdom. Now I've got to go and get a Ph.D. in systematics, and I hate reading. This is not what the Apostle Paul is like, amass more wisdom Rather, you walk in the wisdom of Christ rather than in the wisdom of this world. And this seems to be a foreign concept, sadly at times, in the Christian community. Listen to the advice you get from your friends. Seriously, I want you to do this this week. Evaluate as you talk about things and the wisdom that you get. Honestly reflect, is my friend that claims to know Christ giving me wisdom that is based in his word, or is it in some secular mumbo-jumbo? This is what's amazing at times that you will see and experience inside of the Christian worldview, that people will say that worldly attributes are fine, right? String along a few girls, that's fine. Flirt with as many boys as possible, that's fine. Who cares what you watch or listen to? That's fine. 
Who cares what words come out of your mouth? That's fine. This idea of holy and distinct living that the New Testament is constantly calling for, Christians are time and time again taking the bar of what it means to follow Christ and throwing it to the ground as the least common denominator. And we wonder why people aren't coming to know Christ, and we wonder why our campuses aren't impacted by the gospel, and we wonder why our coworkers never have any time to hear of what we're speaking of. Could it perhaps be that those who are claiming to know Christ walk in the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of Christ? And then we're shocked, like, why isn't this working? But I think the reason why it doesn't work is because we, we've lost our prophetic witness. And you've heard me say this the last few weeks. You keep saying, what's wrong with my preaching being this word prophetic witness? Because there's something distinct about a Christian who actually lives and operates from a Christian worldview. And it impacts every area of their life. Christians should be those people who walk in a way that people aren't surprised to find out that you're a Christian. Like if, if people at your job are surprised when they find out... Oh, you're a Christian? Like, that's a pretty good indication that you probably haven't been walking well. If people are surprised when they find out that you go to church, like, that's not a good thing. You're not being relevant. You're being worldly. This is what gets the Christian worldview in trouble all the time. We're like, we want to be relevant. The Bible is relevant across all time periods through all situations, through all different standards of whatever the culture may say. And a lot of times Christians buy into this. I see it every day because I'll just give you this little insight into my um, life. Um, I love to read blogs. I love to write. I, I love to think. Uh, it's not surprising for those of you who come to my office to see the books and everything. And you're like, oh, whatever. And I... I find it humorous, and I probably should stop doing it because I know that there are days where I'm tempted to sin and actually do sin probably in my office when I read uh, Relevant Magazine's blog articles uh, because basically what Relevant Magazine is is a Christian attempt to be cool and to basically usher in anyone that is in Hollywood into the Christian camp and say they love Jesus. Um, I'm sure this is not going to surprise some of you, may surprise others of you. Apparently, Kanye West has been throwing different Sunday worship services and, and did an event at Coachella where he had a, a Sunday worship service, which is interesting because at the end of it, he had a merch table with like Jesus words on T-shirts and sweatshirts that went for upwards of 50 to $250. And I'm thinking, that would be great. Let's do that at church. Let's see how many people will pay $250 for uh, Brother Eddie's uh, quote from his sermon on the back of a sweatshirt like limited edition merch bro like this is the cultural worldview that we live in where we want to be relevant among those who are supposedly relevant keep in mind what 1 peter 2 12 says keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation when we're walking and stepping carefully we're thinking about how I'm actually living out what it means to be a Christ follower. How much thought, honestly, how much thought have you given to the way that you walk? How much thought have you given to the way that you live out what it means to follow Christ? And are you in the process of regularly evaluating your outward living? We're really good at getting down the inward parts or trying to. 
We don't often give the same care to how we live outwardly. Is there a part of day-to-day living that, if you were honest, is contrary to what it means to be a Christian? What you consume, the way that you respond, the way that you talk, is it contrary to what it means to be a Christian? And not lowest common denominator Christianity. This is what ends up happening. We go down to the lowest common denominator. I'm suggesting tonight that if we're going to evaluate the way that we live, we should go to be holy for I am holy. That should be the standard against what we judge, what we consume, what we think about, who we are, and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And this is the kicker. Are there people in your life who could tell you if you were living inconsistently with what it means to follow Christ? Or is any time anyone, regardless of if they're your best friend that you would literally take a bullet for, or some random person in our college ministry, doesn't matter where they lie in that spectrum, if they were to mention or to perhaps suggest that something that you're living like is inconsistent with what it means to follow Christ, you become immediately defensive, that's a pretty good indication that you are living inconsistently with Christ. The only exception to this rule perhaps might be those people who drift into the camp of legalism. We need to be careful and make sure that we're not allowing those people to have a voice. But if a person who dresses like you, thinks like you, enjoys the same things as you do, but there's an area of your life where they're constantly suggesting that maybe, just maybe, that might be inconsistent with what it means to follow Christ, it might be worth saying time out and thinking about it. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever received in all the years that we've been involved in ministry in the college and ministry here and just ministry in general is to always listen to anyone who brings a critique against you, even if it's wrongfully motivated or is just plain out crazy. There may be a kernel of truth in there that the Lord is using this wackadoodle to bring to your attention. Second thing, one, we're going to step carefully. Two, we're going to seek chances. Paul wants the Colossians to make every opportunity count. That's why he says, redeeming the time. The fact of the matter is the urgency and the nature and the literal reality of hell should push us to be people who are constantly looking for opportunities to share Jesus Christ. David Garland is especially helpful here. He writes, the call here is for the Colossians to blend wisdom with a sense of urgency that exhausts every opportunity to reach unbelievers. Are we really honestly, can we all in the room honestly say that each and every person in our college ministry and starting with ourselves as our own evaluators saying that I am, David Botts is exhausting every opportunity he has to reach unbelievers. If you answer yes to this, congratulations, keep pressing on. I think a majority of us, honestly, if we look at our lives and say, no, I'm not exhausting every opportunity, then what needs to change? We literally believe that there is an an honest-to-goodness literal hell, and it doesn't motivate us to tell the people that we see every day that they're going there in a winsome way, not like, hey, if I were to pull out a 9mm handgun and shoot you in the head, where would you spend eternity? That's not winsome. That's creepy and scary. Being 
wisdom means taking the opportunity to, to suggest to the people around you that they might want to consider their eternal state because of a rousing new finding in medical, the American Medical Association finding. I don't know if you heard this, the new statistic that has rolled out this week, one in every one person will die. It just come out this week. You're like, wow, they, they really confirmed that? Like, probably, and be able to get out a little bit more. Doug Moo, I love Doug Moo. He says, while resisting the wrong kind of outside influence, the Colossian Christians nevertheless need to stay engaged with their fellow citizens and seek to win them to Christ. This isn't some random call to be those nut jobs who are just trying to rid themselves of any worldly influence whatsoever. Sometimes Southern Baptists can be this way, i.e. boycotting Disney World. Like that, who's going to stop going to Disney? I'll boycott on the way in and on the way out. The mid-90s, this happened. You can look it up. It's a historical fact. We had a resolution from the floor passed. We're all going to boycott Disney. And then they all left and went to Disney together. No, that didn't actually happen. But there needs to be a level-headedness to the way that we seek to engage the culture around us that honestly strives to be in the middle of that pendulum swing, right? The we're going to embrace everything and the we're going to embrace nothing. Christians need to learn how to live out what it means to be a Christ follower well in their cultural surroundings and speak into the lives of the people around them and push them to come to know Christ. This is the great tragedy that we face, the lack of ability to seemingly not be able to engage the culture around us. And I get it. I get the fear, right? There's two extremes. Like, I don't want my friends to think I'm crazy. And then there's the other extreme. It's like, Jesus hung out with sinners, so I'm going to do the same thing. Like, and it's really good. Like, we want you to hang out with sinners. I hang out with sinners regularly. All the people in our office are sinners. All the people who are here tonight are sinners. I get the mentality, right? I get the idea. Like, we're going to hang out with those that seem like they're far from God. I love Burt Carson says this. I think this is great. It's true, because this is what people say. Jesus hung out with sinners. So that's what I'm doing. I'm hanging out with sinners and trying to be cool. Jesus was a friend to sinners. It is true. Jesus was a friend to sinners. And because Jesus was a true friend, he called those friends to repent and believe in him. And Christians need to reclaim this. Like, I am your friend, but I'm a good enough friend to tell you that your greatest need is for Jesus Christ. What would that look like if we all became that winsome to be able to say, I'm really a true friend? Because I'm going to tell you this, if your other friends aren't willing to lay it all on the line, I am because I love you enough to tell you that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Just like I am a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy and love to fix this problem. And what is the problem that apart from saving true faith and repentance and following after Jesus Christ, I will spend an eternity separated from God. And I have settled that. And you, my friend, need to do the same thing. Oh, that God would raise up among us a college ministry full of college students that say, I'm going to be a true friend. I'm going to tell my friends. I don't care if it's going to cost me some friends, because in the end, what's ultimately most important is that my friends know that I love them enough to tell them the true nature of their soul. So I want to ask you, how are you 
at making the most of every opportunity in life. I, I think maybe as a result of last week, you might be burdened and you've been praying this week for opportunities to share Christ. And I want to push you this week as you pray for those same opportunities to begin to look for them and to take them and to not let a missed opportunity take you completely out of the running to get in on the next one. We all have those moments. You're like, man, I probably should have shared. That guy who was asking me about what my job is, and I'm just trying to get out of the conversation and want to get to the next thing. We all just need to jump back in and make the most of the next opportunity. So we're, we're going to step carefully. We're going to seek chances. And then number three, we're going to speak courageously. We're going to speak courageously. Verse six. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You might be tempted to think here that grace is referring to being kind and allowing your speech to be gracious. But actually what Paul is speaking here is that our, the way that we talk and the way that we communicate with those people is that it would exude Christ in our conversation. Think Bunyan, my favorite Puritan great Baptist Puritan. His friends said about him, you prick this guy, you cut this guy, what's going to bleed is not red blood, but the Bible. It's, it gets to be, we hang out with this guy, and it's like, John, shut up. Quit talking about Jesus in the Bible. I've been around some of you when you're with your friends and you're like this, like, you seriously got to talk about the Bible? Like, and I've noticed now that that doesn't happen as much around me, but I know it still happens. Like, you can't talk about anything other than Jesus. But friends, why can't this, the conversations that we have ultimately be pivot points to causing more people? Why, we, why can't we just acknowledge the fact that all of the great movies of our day that we all seem to love so much ultimately involve a hero laying down his life to save the other people? And, and we're, people are like, this is great. Like, I hate Jesus, but I love it when my character dies. And then, like, we'll just kick it old school tonight. We love Harry Potter 1, right? He lays his life down to save his friends, and then he comes, and he's not actually dead, but he's the real hero, and everything works out in the end. And we're like, this is a great story. It's because, guess what? Written on the heart of every person and every human being, Romans 1 tells us, is the innate knowledge of God and our need to be redeemed. And we will pay money out the wazoo to go and have Hollywood tell us a story that honestly just originates right here. And then this is where Christians are like, well, we don't want to talk about the fact that we actually go to movies. Why wouldn't you leverage that opportunity? Why wouldn't you go with your friend out to dinner afterwards and say, man, I really love that. And they're like, I did too. And you're like, and the reason why I love that is that pictures what Christ has done for me and you. And they're like, what? Boom, you're in the middle of a gospel conversation. Letting Christ impact every area. It's our speech seasoned with salt. It's the idea that we're winsome and that we're actually engaging and funny. Sharing the gospel should not be boring to you or the person that's hearing you. I think sometimes we take this Ferris Bueller mindset. It's like, Bueller, 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 and everybody's like, just give it up, bro. Like, he's not here. He's playing hooky. That's the point of this movie. And some 
unsaved people are honestly just bored to tears by the way that we go about telling them the greatest thing that ever happened to us. How can the greatest thing that ever happened to you be so incredibly, insidiously boring? How is that possible? Some of you have gotten engaged and you're getting married. Nobody is bored by people who are excited that they're engaged and going to get married. Oh, yeah, then I was just like, hey, do you want to marry me? And so I was realizing, you know, goose, like, whatever, sure, why not? Cool. Works for your schedule, works for mine. Well, I'm free mid to late October. Do you want to get married? What's wrong with you? Like, probably shouldn't get married. And this is the way that Christians go about sharing the gospel. Yeah, and you, I mean, I guess you want to get saved, but you're no pressure. Like, it's cool if you don't want to or if you do want to. Like, seriously, the most impactful thing, and you don't talk about it. And when you do, you sound like you're bored to tears to talk about it. I, I just don't understand it. I think it's a shame, honestly. It's just a reproach on the name of Christ that we we treat it as such. You know, what's amazing is, and I'll I'll just close with this, because I think this is a better illustration than any application question I could potentially ask you when it comes to speaking courageously. Here's the bottom line. and I, I know this illustration will hit home for some of you more than others even tonight. But honestly, if... If we were to find out that three years ago a doctor in, in, ha, had discovered a, a cure to every possible form and type of cancer, and we were just now learning about it three years later, we would like literally refer to that person as a sadist. What is wrong with you? Like That would be something that Democrats and Republicans could get behind. Like, this big campaign, what is wrong with you? How could you? That would be what we would ask. Like, what is wrong with you? Even people who want the government to do everything for them and the people who want the government to do nothing for them would be like, you are a terrible human being. I think that's what the world should do to Christians who don't want to talk about Jesus. That their attitude should be, you're a terrible human being. You claim to know Christ, yet you have zero desire to talk about him. Yet you have zero desire to share about him. We've talked about every cardinal series this week, and you never once shared with me about Jesus. We've talked about the last 30 movies that come out. We've talked about album after album of music, and you've never shared with me about Jesus. I think the public would be outraged, and they should be. And, and people who don't know Christ should be offended by Christians who don't share the gospel. I was cut to the core by that this week because I'm still not where I want to be as an evangelist. You're like, dude, he is fired up tonight. I am because I'm not where I need to be in sharing the gospel with people who are without. Of exhausting every opportunity. I think there's a great dead theologian, Robert Murray McShane, who died at 29 because literally his heart exploded inside of his chest. He was just so on fire for God that he couldn't rest. He couldn't 
sleep. He just wanted to preach and preach and preach and preach and tell and tell and tell and tell to the point that his heart just literally gave out. He had literal burnout, not from being exhausted by the complaints of the people around him or by the detractors in his city, not by anyone other than just the sheer force of being so burdened and so overwhelmed by the reality of the fact that people were dying and going to hell. And if they didn't come to know Christ, that they would go there. I want to burn out that way. And I'm looking for a generation of people who are willing to say, me too. I want to burn out that way. Spurgeon said, if people go to hell, let them go dragging our bodies like we clutch onto them. And we 